I don't know about y'all, but that was so good, I just got to kind of have a minute to just kind of feel it, right? You know what I'm saying? Thank y'all so much. Obviously, Kennard and Kenny and Caroline and Jeff and Steve, but thank you, Pete, um, for leading us this morning. Um, Bonnie was not able to be here, and she's got good friends, doesn't she? <laughs> so, man, that was just a, a great set. Um, holy forever. Holy forever. So thank y'all for being here on Labor Day weekend, right? Um, y'all are here. You know, there's some people that are out and about, and we are always thankful for those who join us online, but we're, we're glad you're here this morning. So have you ever wondered about um, Labor Day and, and how that started? I'm kind of a nerd. I like to know how things got started, especially holidays. Who's, somebody had to start that. Somebody had that thought, how did all that start? So I Googled it. And uh, so in 1882, a labor union leader out of New York named Peter J. McGuire was invited to Toronto, Canada for a Labor Day parade. And he was so impressed when he saw what happened there that he decided to organize one for New York. So he did. And this was also done in New Jersey that same year by a labor union machinist leader named Matthew McGuire. So it got started. Now the parade in that first year ended up in a part where there were speeches and there were picnics and concerts and rallies for an eight-hour workday. That's what they did. And those early Labor Day parades were not holidays, and those who attended did not get paid. They were supposed to be there, but they didn't get paid for that. So in 1887, a few years later, there was, they were the first state to make Labor Day an official state holiday, and then New York and other states would follow soon. It did not become a national um, holiday. It became a national holiday in 1894 through a national disaster. Does anybody remember what happened in 1894 as a national disaster? I didn't either. I had to look it up. So, in Pullman, Illinois, there was a guy named Pullman who had a bunch of cars. You've probably heard of Pullman cars, right, for, for um, trains. And uh, railroad, uh, railroad workers went on a huge labor strike protesting the Pullman cart company because Pullman, who owned that company, it was a tough economic time in our country at the time, and he cut all of his um, employees' wages by 25%, which is a huge cut, as you can imagine. But in those days, a lot of people who worked for their employer also rented or leased their homes from their employer. Now, some of us are going, what? Yeah, that's how it was in those days. So, not only did he cut their wages by 25%, he did not cut their rent or anything else by 25%. So you can imagine how these people react. We can't possibly live on this. We're going to starve. We can't feed our families if you're going to cut us by 25%. So there was this outrage and there was a massive strike caused by those who worked for the Pullman cart company. Now the railroad workers heard about this and they go, hey, those guys are, are one of us and it's not fair what's going on with them. And so you know what? If we see a Pullman cart coming in here, we're not going to hook it up to the train and we're not going to detach it. So you can imagine what happened. The railroad came to a screeching halt because of this strike. Now, if you're a rich guy and you're in the railroad business, this is not good. You're losing a lot of money. So there was already some riots and things that were going on in the town because people were going, we can't get stuff. Now, we think about the mode of transportation for most of the stuff we get nowadays is what? Tractor trailers, right? But in those days, everything was relied on by the train business. 
And so then president, which was anyone, anyone, Grover Cleveland, if anybody said that, good for you. He was the, he was very much pressured, you can imagine, by some of these rich train owners going, you got to do something about this. You got to stop this. Nothing's going on. We're losing millions of dollars. You've got to do something. So he decided to send 12,000 national troops to Illinois and this only made things worse. There was already the nat- there was already state troopers there and police here. And when they brought in the the people that were protesting, said you're you're just stirring the pot, and it was awful. And the twelve thousand national troops actually shot into a crowd and killed four people and injured several others, and it was a disaster. And President Cleveland was criticized for the harsh action. This happened, I think, in June or July of that year. And so to try to bring some peace to the situation, he and Congress signed a bill making the first Monday in September a national holiday for workers after the incident. Well, that'll make it all better. (laughs) But that's how it started. Isn't that kind of crazy? And I would encourage you, if you're a nerd like me and you like history, to go and read. I mean, the things that were going on at that time were, were pretty fascinating. And you might go, that's great, Craig. Useless information. However, if you are a trivia person, you just might get that question sometimes. Or you might be on a trivia team one night eating wings at the local whatever, you know. And you might just know, hey, I was in church that day, and I remember our nerd preacher talking about how Labor Day got started. So, you know, good things happen when you come to church. That's all I'm saying. Well, we're going to start a new sermon series today called Work as Worship. Work as as worship. What we do in our vocation and our work should be worship. And most of us will spend our entire or most of our entire adult life working and laboring for a paycheck to make a living. Work and labor don't sound like appealing words when we hear them. So we use words like career and occupation. And maybe that sounds better, but however we phrase it, we do know we will still spend a huge part of our life engaged in work and labor in our career and occupation. So with that being said, how do we, if we're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, how do we view and perform our work and our labor and our careers and our occupation when we're a follower of Jesus? Surely... That plays into it. If Jesus should affect every aspect of my life, then my work, which is such a huge part of my life and what I do every day, then certainly should be something that I look to Jesus and his teachings and his guidance and his wisdom. But we can also work not only in what we do for a living or occupation, but also we do a lot of things um, for our family that we don't get a paycheck for doing, don't we? We still have stuff we have to do. We work, washing clothes, washing dishes, fixing stuff around the house, taking care of the cars, taking care of the yard. That's all work. That's not really our career or occupation, but it's simply a part of all of our lives. And uh, Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines labor as expenditure of physical or mental effort, especially when difficult or compulsory. Or it can be the services performed by workers for wages, and this was interesting in the definition, as distinguished from those rendered by entrepreneurs for profits, or any human activity that provides the goods or services in an economy. And a lot of you provide those goods and services for our economy, right? You go to work every day and you're providing those things. So what about work is worship? When we hear those two definitions, when we think about worship, maybe we think about what we just did, right? We just were in worship this morning. We worship God this morning. Most people think about that, and they think about 
worship as songs or hymns, a message or a sermon, communion as we'll take later, prayers. They think of the worship service. But again, from the dictionary, it's to honor or show reverence for as a divine being or supernatural power, to regard with great or extravagant respect, honor, and devotion. That's what it means to worship, uh, to perform or take part in the act of a worship. So we did all that. So how do we, as Jesus followers, honor and show reverence to God the Creator through the expenditure of our physical and our mental efforts in our jobs and our careers every day, and even in our daily housework and things that we do that we don't get paid for? How do we show God honor in doing that? So that's what we're going to try to answer over the next few weeks as we look at several biblical texts and maybe parables of Jesus concerning work and labor and how that can and really should be worship. When we go all the way to the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1, we see God working, creating the universe, right? The world. He created. He worked for six days. And on day six, he created humans. He made them in his image. He made them male and female. And he created and gave them tasks to do. In that early time in the garden, they had a, Adam, when before Eve came, he got to care for things in the garden. And he got this awesome job of naming the animals. I thought, what a great job that would be as they came up. Hippopotamus giraffe, whale, you know, I don't know how he came up with all that, but he got to name the animals we read about. That was the type of work he did. didn't seem hard, but somebody got to do that. And in Genesis 2, we read that Jesus, I mean, that God rested on the seventh day from his what? His work. God was about work. God in his DNA, as we're in our DNA, if we're God is our creator, then we have work as part of who we are. And after the fall of humanity, when Adam and Eve decided they were going to listen to the serpent, to Satan, and say, can you really trust God? And for a moment, they decided not to trust God and think they could become God. And so we read that going forward, work and labor, because of that fall, their separation from God would now be more difficult. The ground would produce thorns and thistles. Jesus talks about labor and work to his disciples one day. And Jesus talks about the most meaningful labor there is to him. And that's sowing and reaping for eternity. Not just for something right here and now, but for eternity. And that may sound archaic or, or agricultural, but Jesus was in a very agricultural uh, culture when he uh, was living here on this earth. Everybody did agriculture. Most everybody was involved in agriculture. So Jesus' stories and his parables were about that. And Jesus used those examples a lot in teaching. And it's something I think we can look at closer. So we're going to look at John chapter 4. And this is where Jesus, and we're not going to read this first part, but I always like to encourage you after a sermon to hopefully push you to go back to the passage I was looking at before and after and read some of that stuff so you'll be familiar. But Jesus... This conversation that we're going to uh, listen to him have with his disciples. Before this, Jesus has this encounter with a Samaritan woman. And Jesus meets this Samaritan woman at a well working to get water for her day. That was part of her daily work was getting water for her family. And she had to go and she meets Jesus. And out of the seemingly everyday chore of working and getting water, there comes this spiritual conversation that takes place between Jesus and this woman that ends up making an amazing impact on her. This woman and many other Samaritans become believers in Jesus 
because of this conversation that came out of work. So Jesus has this conversation with this woman, and it, sa- it tells us that the disciples had gone into town to get food. Jesus sent them to go get groceries because they would have messed this conversation up. Because Jesus was okay with conversing with a woman in public. He knew, y'all go away and I'll handle this opportunity. So he does. And then the disciples come back from getting groceries and they see Jesus sitting there talking to this woman at the well and they're going, what is he doing? Why are you talking to a woman in public, especially a Samaritan woman? So that's where we're going to um, uh, get into our text this morning. So John chapter 4, verse 27 through 38. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent to you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. So I'm sure the disciples are a little bit like, every time we do something, Jesus turns it into a spiritual thing. (laughs) Yeah, because that's life. And so we just went to get groceries, and we're asking if he wants something to eat, and all of a sudden he's telling us about eternity, about the kingdom of God. And notice how Jesus responds. They say, you need something to eat, Jesus. You must be famished because you were talking to a woman in public and a Samaritan woman. And Jesus is quick to respond and says, my food... My nourishment, my sustenance is to do the will of my Father God who sent me. It is to finish His, there's that word again, work. That's what I'm to be about and that's what I'm doing. Therefore, if you're following me, that should be your food. That's what you should be about, doing God's will. And I thought about that and I know Mike and I were joking about, some of y'all are probably tired of us talking about New Guinea because we got to go. (laughs) But... We recently got to go on that trip and see Martha Wade, who had been in New Guinea for 40 years. And as I was putting together this sermon, I thought about Martha. And I thought, I was there for four days in that village, and Martha's been there 40 years. You know why? Because that, what Jesus was talking about, her sustenance, her nourishment comes from doing the will of God. God gave her work to do, a task to do, and she's been about it the whole time. So she probably understands more than any of us what Jesus was talking about. That's her food. That's where she gets nourishment so instead of he says there's this saying y'all say in about four months there's going to be a harvest but jesus seems to be no it's it's you can't just sit around for four months there's stuff that needs to be done he says open your eyes look at the field start reaping start harvesting jesus was saying this is what i've called you to do to look around you and see that there's people something that has eternal value We need to bring these people to know God the Father. Something that brings eternal life to others. You need to be about that in your life. And the fields were ripe for harvest. And Jesus is saying, even here in Samaria, among the people you don't like. 
they need to know about God the Father. And so, for us today as we think about that, if Jesus were to come to us and say, the fields are ripe for our harvest because they are, where would that be for you personally? Would it be at your work? Would it be at your school? Would it be in your neighborhood? Like, yeah, I got some crazy people in my neighborhood that need to know Jesus. How about your family? That can be the most difficult harvest to people to harvest in the world, isn't it? Our own family. Maybe your club or your ball team or some organization you're a part of. It's, is there an opportunity for harvest there? Do we even think of those terms? How do we react to that? How do we go about making that happen? We know there's people that need to hear about the kingdom of God and, and hear about Jesus and, and, and how he can transform their lives. But how do we go about doing that? Well, I think Jesus did it by going and sitting somewhere where somebody was doing a daily task of getting water. So maybe our... Um, uh, today, the way we would do that is stand around the water cooler. Maybe that's the well of today. And we hear that a lot, you know, around the water cooler, you know, things get said about business during our breaks. We stand around the water cooler. And is there a way of getting a spiritual conversation started like Jesus did with this woman? I mean, we may not think that's practical, but that's exactly how Jesus called his disciples. Think about it. Jesus called all his disciples at church, didn't he? He didn't call any of his disciples at church that we know of or at the temple. Where did he call them? He called them while they were working. Think about that. Seven of them were fishermen. And when Jesus went to call them, it wasn't at the temple. It was right there where they were fishing, doing their work. When Jesus says, I know this is what you do for a living. This is your occupation. But I'm going to make you what? Fishers of men. I'm going to give you something really meaningful to do. One was a tax collector. Matthew was in his booth collecting taxes for Rome when Jesus said, come follow me. And for whatever reason, Matthew left that tax collector booth. And others were probably tradesmen of some sort, and they followed Jesus. But there was something beyond their daily labor that called them. They wanted something, made them wonder, even long for something more than meaningful than just catching and cleaning fish every day. Just collecting taxes for Rome, the enemy, I've made a lot of money, Matthew thought, but what is this really doing for my life and my eternity? And so when Jesus called, they followed. So should we wait on some calling or voice from God to move us away from our jobs or vocations? Well, not necessarily. Maybe for most of us, God has us right where we are for a specific purpose. And he can use you right where you are to make a difference in people's lives. And maybe we just don't take that seriously or see it as a reality sometimes. Well, I, you know, I can't bring that up at work. And No, God has you there for a reason. Martin Luther was approached once by a working man who wanted to know how he could serve God. And Luther asked him, what is your work right now? And the man says, I'm a shoemaker, I'm a cobbler. He said, much to this man's surprise, Luther replied, then make good shoes and sell them at a fair price. Probably not what he was expecting. Notice, Luther didn't say, make Christian shoes. He didn't say that. He didn't tell him, leave the shoe business and become a monk. Go into the ministry. Go and be a missionary. No, he says, right where you are right now, make great shoes, give people good service, and that's how you can influence people right where you are. As Christians, we can faithfully serve God in a variety 
of vocations and jobs. We don't need to justify that in terms of some sort of a spiritual value or evangelistic usefulness. We simply pursue the calling of the gifts and the talents that God's given us with motives and goals and standards that show the world that we really are different. I can be a great worker no matter where I am, no matter what I'm doing. I want people to see there's something different. Did you know that nearly 70 percent of Americans cite that work is a major source of stress in their lives. Hard to believe, huh? And over half, 50% of Americans report being unsatisfied and unhappy in their jobs. There's nothing worse to me than going to your job every day and saying, I hate this. I don't even want to get up. And some of you have been there. It's not fun, is it? But I have to. I'm stuck in this. So how can the typical worker find a little satisfaction in work when maybe we really don't like the people we work with or even what we're doing? Well, Adam Grant, who is a researcher at the Wharton School of Business, offers some some advice about becoming a giver at work. Well, what do you mean become a giver? Well, he, in his research, has identified through looking at a lot of different um, work sources, he says there's three kinds of basic workers. There's takers... There's matchers and there's givers in the workforce. And you go, well, what are you talking about? Well, he says, takers see the workplace as this competitive dog-eat-dog place. If I don't look out for myself first, nobody else is. So I have to look out. And then there's the people called matchers. And matchers are people who are always trying to match. Oh, I'm going to do something for you so that later you will do something for me. And so you're constantly figuring out how can I get you to do this and how can I do this for you and we got to all even out in the wash so that we can match. That's why we do these things. But the third category he calls givers. In contrast, givers are not self-focused, but they're other-focused. They pay more attention to what other people need from them. Their hallmark is generosity at work. And he says... Only 8% of people say that's what they are in the workforce. And you can understand because most people think if you're a giver at work, what's going to happen to you? People are going to walk all over you. They're going to take advantage of you. So why would I want to do that? It's not going to get me ahead. Also, when people are stressed out at work, their first instinct is to retreat into that taker mentality. See, if I don't take care of me, nobody else is, so I have to take care of me. That's my first instinct. But Grant's research consistently shows that givers are among the most successful people in business and the happiest. And you're saying 8%? How is that possible? In one study, he found that givers who were high school teachers were less vulnerable to stress and exhaustion if they saw the impact their giving was having on their students. If they saw. I don't know about you, but when I was in high school, I had teachers that impacted me and coaches that impacted me. And you know why? Because I knew that they cared about me. I thought, they don't make jack. Why are they doing this? They must really love the subject they teach, and they must really love us for them to do this. And that made it even more impactful to me when I think about some of my favorite teachers and coaches that had an impact in my life. And he goes on. He says, being a giver at work also has lasting benefits on our well-being outside of work. He did a study on 68 firefighters who helped others on the job that they felt happier at home at bedtime than those who did not. That means when they lay their heads on the pillow at night 
they say, you know what, it felt good. I did what I was supposed to do, my job at work, but I also poured into some other people and helped them. And when I, I'm going to bed at night, I can sleep knowing that I did that. I'm not going that match thing. I'm not going that competitive thing. Who do I need to get something from tomorrow? No, I helped other people today. And so he asked this question that's relevant, I think, to all of us today, is would you rather achieve success at work that comes at the expense of others or in ways that actually lift people up? So what's the answer to that? Tim Keller was speaking to a, a mostly secular audience on MSNBC's Morning Joe show one time, and he offered this advice, advice on work and careers and success. He says, when you make work your identity, if you're successful, it destroys you because it goes to your head. If you're not successful, it destroys you because it goes to your heart. It destroys your self-worth. But faith in Christ gives you an identity that's not in work or accomplishment, and that gives you insulation against the changes that happen in our work. If you're successful, you stay humble. If you're not successful, you have some stability. Work is a great thing when it's a servant instead of our master. Think about that for a minute. Is work your servant or is it your master? So just as many people have gone before us, Jesus was saying there's a lot of people that have gone before you, disciples, and he's talking about the prophets and, and other people who've gone before them and sowed, planted seeds. And Jesus says you need to be looking for the opportunities to lay, to plant, to, to harvest some of those seeds that other people have planted. And that's what God in reality has created us for. Can you think of people that have labored into your life, that have planted seeds into your life? I can we all have it. When I think about this church, I think some 60 plus years ago, there was a group of people that said, you know what, Southwest Atlanta needs a church. And this small group of people got together and said, we're going to meet in Southwest High School and we're going to start a church. And they did. And some 60 something years later, here we are. And I think about the vision of those people that God said they saw there was a harvest that could be had. And they invested in that and now this church is a part of God's kingdom and has been for 60 something years and we get to uh, be a part of that heart things that have been harvested so who saw growing in you and stepped up to help you reap the benefits of your growth think about Jesus he was a carpenter until, a carpenter until the age of 30 can you imagine the carpentry work that Jesus did you think when people saw it they kind of went yeah that's okay Probably not. I think people would go, that is amazing. Look at the handiwork. Look at the craftsmanship in that. When Jesus made a table or a chair or whatever it was, it had to have been amazing. And he did that till he was 30. And think about all the sowing and reaping that Jesus invested in people through his being a carpenter. That's why he had such an amazing um, reputation in the community before he even started preaching. He had an amazing reputation because of how he worked. Later, his work was encouraging, equipping, and challenging people to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, which is all about people. Yes, we must labor. Yes, we have to have jobs. We have to work. But God intended that to be a means to do the real meaningful work of changing lives, of changing lives. So where do you need to make some changes in your mindset at work? And I don't care if you're at a corporate level, you're high up in the company, or if you're one of these people that's just maybe started at kind of the bottom of your company and you're kind of moving your way up. No matter where you start, we have the opportunity to invest in people and make a difference. 
It should be on our minds every day as we go to work, looking at it's a field to be harvested, and I can be a part of that. So I'm going to close with this story. Uh, last year I got to do a wedding, and I, and I shared with some of y'all, it was a very unusual wedding because the bridesmaid did not carry flowers down the aisle. They carried puppies. Not making this up. These people were really into um, pet adoption. It was really important for them. Uh, their ring bearer was their personal dog who was amazing. And so I'm going, this is going to be weird, and how's it going to work? But they did. I don't know if they gave the, the puppies Benadryl before the service because they were perfect. They didn't move. Um, but as, and then later they had those puppies for adoption at the, at the reception. That was, that was part of it. But that's not the most amazing thing that struck me about this wedding. So as you're talking to people getting preparing for a wedding, you, you, you ask them certain questions like, okay, so when we get to that part where it says, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And then her father and her mother and I, the father usually does. But she let me know quickly that her dad was not going to be giving her away. Matter of fact, he wouldn't even be at the wedding because they had had a falling out years ago and he had kicked her out of the house. I said, well, is there someone that's going to give you away? She goes, yeah, my manager is. Your manager, yeah. I, when I got kicked out of the house, I went to Walmart and I started working. And this guy was my manager and he has invested in me. He's been like a dad to me and he is going to walk me down the aisle. And I was like, are you kidding me? So if you didn't hear anything else I said today, tell me you can't make a difference in the workplace. You can. And that was so, it was just so inspiring to me as I saw it. I remember talking to him afterwards and I was just like, Man, I just want to shake your hand. You know, the investment you made in this young lady, you transformed her life in a workplace. You wouldn't think at Walmart you would have time, but he invested in her and made a difference in her. It's something, again, that should be in our minds every day as we go to work. So maybe there's somebody here today that is ready to claim eternal life through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you know, this whole thing started by Jesus challenging this woman to not let her past define her future. That's how this whole thing started. And Jesus was always investing in people and let them know their lives could be transformed and they could be the people that he always intended them to be.